Amen. Let's turn our Bibles tonight to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. We took a couple week break the last couple weeks. We looked at the thought of worship and we saw what true worship is and then we saw the results of true worship and I'm thankful for those two passages we were able to look at and what we were able to be reminded of and I hope that was a help to you. I hope it affects your worship, not just here in the services, but at home uh, throughout your daily life. And tonight we're back in our series on doctrine that we had been going through since, since, since we arrived here at the beginning of the year. We're going to look at the deity of Christ tonight. Let's stand together. This might be the last one of these for a while. Um, I've got something to feel I'm supposed to preach next week. Um, we might be back into doctrine just depending on where, what direction the Lord leads. But this might be the last one we do for a little bit on doctrine. But Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. It says, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, we look in the Word of God in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And we look in the rest of that chapter, we see the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And it's important for us to understand that Jesus was not just a man, not a prophet, not just the Son of God. He is God. And uh, we, we believe that Jesus is God. He's part of the Trinity. And tonight we're looking at the deity of Christ and why it is important for us to understand and believe that the, in the deity of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Yeah, the privilege that it is to uh, be here together tonight. Lord, I pray that you just, uh, Lord, keep with all those that are on the, on the roads right now safe. And I pray that you would uh, just bless us here as we're looking in your word. God, I pray that as we reminded us some truths, maybe uh, get to hear some things in a way we haven't heard them before tonight, God, that you would, uh, Lord, strengthen our faith in you as we understand uh, that Jesus is God. And I pray tonight that as we look at those, we'll, it'll strengthen our faith, it'll strengthen our uh, foundation that we're standing upon tonight. And let's call this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. We look here in Matthew chapter 16, on a particular day in Jesus' earthly ministry, he took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And above the city, there was a steep rock cliff, and in the notches of the cliff, Jesus is there with his disciples, and there was a pagan people that had come and built shrines to other gods and placed them there in that cliff. In front of these shrines, Jesus is, is there with these men, and no doubt they saw all that was going on, and those people were practicing forms of idolatry and immorality. And Jesus, on purpose, I believe, took them to this distinctly pagan place, and they were uncomfortable. They were unsure why they were there. They, they did not agree with those people. They, they knew that those things were not of God, and if they weren't of God, they were of the devil. And it was a place of idol worship. It was a place of spiritual darkness. And it was at that place that Jesus asked them this question that he hadn't asked them before. He said, whom do men say that I am? And we saw their response there in verse 14. Their answer, it says, and they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist. Some, Elias, others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Those answers they were giving, they, those men were good men. 
But those men were men. They, they weren't God. And, and he was asking these men, the disciples, this question at a time for them, to, for them to understand, but also to be able to help others understand that Jesus was not just another prophet, not just another good man. Jesus was God. And as the disciples answered this, Peter gave the correct answer. What did he say? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Not what different people and who gave different identities. Jesus was the Son of God. And as we look at our world today, many religions give many different answers to that question. Look at many of the dominant religions in our world. And some used to stand on the fact that Jesus was not just the Son of God, Jesus was God, and they backed away from that. They said you can pray to uh, another God or another name, and that's just another name for God. Or Jesus is a brother of, of these men, and, and there's all kinds of things they might try to bring in, or even we, we look at many religions that may get somewhat close to us, they will, they will not say that Jesus is God, he's part of the Trinity. Jesus and God are not the same as what they'll try to tell you. But what we find Jesus saying in the word of God is, I and the Father are one. We find evidence after evidence, verse after verse, that Jesus is God and, 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 and proof of his deity. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity, and in that book, he pointed out the ridiculous nature of the argument that suggests that Jesus was just a good teacher, but not God. And he said this, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He said he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has left that open, he has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. So those religions that tell you that Jesus is not God, but Jesus was just a good teacher or a good prophet, if they're saying those things, they're contradicting themselves because he lied if, he, if, if he's not God. There's verse after verse and time after time where he spoke of himself being the son of God and him being one with his father. And if Jesus told us those things, then how can we trust anything else that he said? You know, some religions will try to tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. But his followers, they later fabricated this to bring claims to his divinity. That argument's not historically grounded, but it's where we can see why unbelievers would use it. The deity of Christ is the central message of the gospel, and it is central to the entire Christian faith. Everything that we stand on stands upon the fact that Jesus is God. So after Jesus' disciples told him what others thought about his identity, he asked them, who, who do you think I am? And I think the disciples may have looked around a little bit because they don't want to give the wrong answer. And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. That is a question that we need to be able to answer. We need to understand why we believe what we believe and why we say uh, that Jesus is part of the Trinity. Jesus is not just God's son. He is also God in the flesh. You know, the word Peter used when he called Jesus the Christ, the word Christ means the anointed one. So in identifying Jesus as Christ, he was declaring Jesus 
was the Messiah, the one who came to be the Savior. You know, Peter stated this, this, the truth this day in Caesarea Philippi, and he, he didn't say something that was unknown or unknowable. He simply stated what was clear to him, and what, uh, but what others were unwilling to see at that point. And we've seen the opposition to this already in the book of Luke. They did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and there was much opposition to it, but Peter stated the obvious. You know, even if we go back to the baptism of Jesus there in the book of Matthew, or in the book of Luke, God plainly declared Jesus' deity at his baptism. He said, this is my beloved, what? Son, in whom I am well pleased. All three parts of the Trinity were there at that, in, that, in that situation. Now turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. You know, years later, John wrote the Gospel of John with the intention of setting the record straight regarding the identity of Christ. And in John chapter 20, verse 31, it says, But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. He's not just a good man, not just a prophet. He is God in the flesh. He is the Son of God. If we miss the deity of Christ or we do not think it is that important, we are missing the message of salvation and the entire focus of the Bible. So, and if we want to have a biblical worldview, we really need to understand and know who Jesus is. So there's three truths as we look at the deity of Christ I want to look at tonight. And the first one is Christ revealed in the Bible. And the Bible reveals Christ as the eternal God who took on human flesh that he might redeem fallen humanity. And we see Jesus is eternal in his word. Jesus' life did not begin in Bethlehem. He always existed. From eternity past and he will never cease to exist. Why don't you go ahead and look at at John chapter 1. We're somewhat finished here in Matthew, but go to John chapter 1. We'll be there for a little bit. You know, the opening statement of the Gospel of John places Jesus... The word in the context of time and the, the verb was that we find there indicates that Jesus existed before time began. It says in the beginning, the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. You know, time began when God created heaven and earth, but Jesus existed before time. And since only God is eternal... If Jesus was there, Jesus is God. Every attribute of the deity that we look at, that we know of God, can be given as well to Jesus Christ. We understand Jesus is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipotent. We've seen that many, many Sundays already. He's all-powerful. And we see his eternality. It's shown throughout both the Old and the New Testament. And we can look in the book of Isaiah. God, God specifically declared that he is the only God. And before him, no true God exists. And there will be no God after him. He said, ye are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen. That ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed. Neither shall there be after me. There's only one God. But then we see Jesus in John chapter 8. Himself declaring he eternally existed. Not just John saying it, but Jesus himself said it. In John 8 verse 58, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, what did he say then? I am. Jesus himself stated he is eternal God. And he was so distinct on that fact to a point that the unbelieving Jews believed he was blaspheming God 
And they picked up stones to kill him. And we can look there in John chapter 8 and, and be reminded of that. A theologian wrote on this thought, he said, The eternality and deity of Christ are inseparably linked together. Those who deny his eternality also deny his deity. So if we, if we, if we believe that Jesus is God, if we, believe, if we believe in the deity of Christ, we will believe he's eternal. That's more evidence of it. So after establishing this, John 1 points to Jesus' deity by showing his relationship with God the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God. So this reveals Christ the Son as a separate person from God the Father, and he's also with the Father. So this is portraying the idea of two persons, two individuals face-to-face with each other. We see Jesus is not simply a partial expression of God, or God just briefly manifesting himself. It plainly shows that his life was more than just 33 years here on this earth. It it has eternally been. They're separate persons. I want you to to keep your place here in John chapter 1. And while you are here in John chapter 1, I'm going to read Genesis 1. And I want you to see some things as the similarities between these two texts. So we're going to look, you'll look at John 1 through 5, I'll read Genesis 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Do you see some similarities in those two books? There's a parallel structure in these two passages together, and it is not by accident. God, as he inspired this to be written, understood how these things would line up together as they do. And he's pointing out that Jesus is the very word that was referred to in God's creation in Genesis 1. So the one who spoke the light into existence is also the light that is referred to in verse 4 of John chapter 1. This basically what, what John has written here was added commentary on Genesis chapter 1. And we see all three persons of the Trinity in John 1, God and three persons there. And we see them also in the opening verses of the Bible. You know, John spent a lot of time with Jesus. And he didn't see Jesus as simply a good man. He knew and he began his, his book with an understanding and a declaration that Jesus was God. So we see he's eternal. We also see, as he's revealed here in the Bible, he's, he was manifested in the flesh. So Jesus, the eternal God, he manifested himself to us as part of the human race when he came and took on human flesh. Look at verse 14 of John chapter 1. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that, what is described there in verse 14 is what we celebrated just a couple months ago, deity wrapped in humanity. And we can look at Philippians chapter 2 and we see Jesus as he came, it says, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be what? Equal with God. But made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. God came down in the flesh, humbled himself, lived a life here, and died for us. He manifested himself in a person so that he could struggle through our struggles he could walk on our streets he could feel our pain to the fullest degree possible and he did all of this 
so we could receive his grace, so we could receive his comfort, so we could be strengthened by him and we call to him for help. Now, this was prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 7, it says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does the name Emmanuel mean? God with us. The deity of Christ and the meaning of that name. You know, years before Jesus would be born, the Old Testament prophesied he'd be born. And they prophesied he was not just a Messiah, he was God in the flesh. You know, the Old Testament contains 60 major prophecies concerning the Messiah. 270 ramifications come from those prophecies. So out of 60 major prophecies, there's 270 elements of what, what needed to happen. And as Jesus came, every one of those came to pass. Every bit of prophecy, every bit of prediction on Jesus came to pass. The mathematical probability of, of that happening is in, in just eight of the 60 prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. I'm not a math scholar, but that is uh, one out of four or five more zeros than a trillion. So to, to help us understand that tonight, I want you to imagine uh, our beautiful state of Texas covered in silver dollars two feet deep. And in the whole state of Texas being covered in silver dollars two feet deep, there's one silver dollar that has my initials on it. And then we're going to take... Uh, we're going to take Brother Jim here, we're going to put a blindfold on him, tell him to walk as far as he wants to, and then to pick up, to reach, to bend down and pick up a silver dollar, and if, he, and if he picked up the silver dollar with my initials, and the whole state of Texas two feet deep, that's the same probability as just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled. It's a pretty good evidence that Jesus is God. You know, not only is Jesus the, the physical and, and the prophesied manifestation of God, but he is the perfect manifestation of God. Hebrews says, we have, not, we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, then what does it say? Yet without sin. You know, the, the people that do not firmly stand on the deity of Jesus take a lot of liberty to belittle Jesus as often as they can or change who he was or change what we know about him in September of 2020 the church of Iceland they posted an online advertisement on their Facebook page that that picture that fixed that featured Jesus with all kinds of adjustments to match many different lifestyles that they're trying to promote that are okay for believers to have it was a cartoon drawing it was displayed on on public transportation buses around the capital city of Iceland. Many people spoke out against this. There was a lot of backlash because of it, and the church ended up removing the ad from the Internet, and they, they apologized and expressed regret. They didn't really apologize. They just expressed regret that people were offended by what they were trying to say, and they said this. We're trying to embrace society as it is. We have all sorts of people, and we need to train ourselves to talk about Jesus as being all sorts in this context. But if we look at the Bible, we understand that Jesus isn't all sorts of people. And the Bible doesn't condone all sorts of behavior or lifestyles. 
because it would be a change of God's creation, change of how God intended his people to be, a change of how God has instructed us to live. Jesus is the perfect holy son of God who, even as he is God in the flesh, he invites all sinners to come to him with love. But he's not to be altered. He's not a man that we can decide to do whatever we want with. He is God and he needs to be revered. You know, of any man who ever lived, Jesus is unique because there was no sin in him. Even an unsaved man named Pontius Pilate declared, I find no fault in this man. So he is revealed to be sinless. He's re- he revealed to be the one to redeem us. So we see Christ revealed in the Bible. Second thing we see tonight, Christ's redemption in the Bible. Why did Jesus, the eternal God, come and manifest himself in the flesh? Why did he do that? To bring us salvation. So reconciliation between man and God did not come by man's initiative. Reconciliation between us and God was not our idea. It was God's idea. And Jesus came to take care of that problem, to take care of salvation is only of God. John chapter 1 verse 13, if you're still there, it says, Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of who? God. So how did he bring his redemption? First of all, he brought it through a sacrifice. Jesus came to be a sacrifice for us, and his purpose is found in Luke. We've mentioned it many weeks already this year. It says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That is why he came. You know, the Bible tells us that we were like lost sheep, and Jesus came to rescue us. Romans 5 verse 8 says, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he made a substitutionary payment as he came to this world for us. And he offers eternal life to anyone who will choose him, who will turn from their own works and from their own uh, dependence and trust in him for salvation. He tells us that he is the only way. The book of Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, neither is there salvation in any other. The redemption that we can have, the redemption every man can have that walks the face of this earth is only from Jesus. It's complete through Jesus. Through his sacrifice. But not just his sacrifice, it was made complete because of his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus provided the proof of his deity. Now before he resurrected himself from the dead, he had raised other people. But he also raised himself from the dead. Henry Morris on this thought, he said, The bodily resurrection of Jesus is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. If it did take place, then Christ is God and the Christian faith is absolute truth. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know, Paul wrote something similar regarding the resurrection of Jesus here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he said there in verse 17... If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are most been miserable. So if he had not raised himself from the dead, our faith is in vain. And if we're placing our faith on someone who did not raise himself from the dead, we have nothing. 
We understand that isn't true. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the bedrock of our Christian faith, and it's the most spectacular event in all of human history. But how do we know it's true? How do we know it's not just a story that has been passed down? You know, if we look at the Word of God, we have three proofs. And not just in the Word of God, it was, it was declared by many historians at the time as well of the life of Jesus and all that took place. But there's three proofs. One of, the, one of the proofs we have is that the tomb he was in was guarded. There's people who suggest that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but that his disciples came and, and stole his body. And we can read the Bible and see they were worried about that. So what did they do? They put guards there at the tomb. And the argument is dismissed because of the enemies of Jesus. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they, they asked for the tomb to be guarded and the request was granted. We can look in Matthew chapter 27 and see that. Pilate allowed it. He said, ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. Make sure nobody can take him. So when Jesus' body was gone and the guards told the chief priest he had risen from the dead, the chief priest then bribed the guards and the guard's superiors to instead say that they had fallen asleep on the job. We look at Matthew 28, verse 12. It says, And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Evidence in the word of God from Matthew that they were bribed to lie about it. The Roman punishment for a soldier who fell asleep at any of his jobs was death. We just talked about that last week. And the fact that they were not executed is a sign that bribes were involved. This was a cover-up. Conspiracy theory in the Bible. Look at that. All right, a guarded tomb. Second, second reason. Not just a guarded tomb, but an empty tomb. You know, if Jesus' body had still been in the tomb, then the guards would not have had to give a reason for why it was empty. And if we can also look in the gospel, several different people, all expecting to find Jesus in the tomb, people that were believers in him, instead went to the tomb to find it empty. A group of women went to anoint Jesus' body and they were greeted by an angel who invited them to look inside. Another woman went back and invited Peter and John to come see it as well. There's an empty tomb and there's, the tomb is still empty today. The third thing, there were living eyewitnesses. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. You still there? 1 Corinthians 15. So after the resurrection of Jesus, he appeared to his disciples in many different occasions over 40 days. And at one point, Jesus also appeared to 500 people at least. And at the time Paul recorded this, the majority of those people were still alive. So if Jesus had not, in fact, appeared to people after his death, after his resurrection, it would have been very easy for people to speak up and say, nobody, nobody saw that. 1 Corinthians chapter 50, verse 5, it says, and, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he, after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen of James, then, all, then of all the apostles, and, a, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. Paul himself was a witness 
of the resurrected Christ. Someone told of a Muslim who became a Christian. And when his friends asked why he had become a Christian, he responded to them with a comparison that they would understand. He said, it's like this. Suppose you were going down the road and suddenly the road forked in two directions, but you didn't know which way to go. There were two men at the fork, one dead and one alive. Who would you ask which way to go? The resurrection of Jesus not only provides evidence of his deity, but it also confirms to us that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. So we see he's revealed in scripture, we see his redemption described in scripture, and the last thing, we see his reunion prophesied in scripture. We need to see Jesus as more than a historical figure. I believe we, I believe we see that he is our living God who we, should, we can all look forward to seeing one day. And just before Jesus was, was crucified, he promised his disciples that he would come again. And he told them there in John chapter 14 and verse 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are what? Many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then what did he say? I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Turn to Acts chapter 1. So Jesus gave us that promise. And after his resurrection and his ascension, the angels told the disciples that he will return in like manner. Meaning that Jesus will physically return to earth. Acts chapter 1 verse 10, it says, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Why are you standing here hope, and, and, uh, after what just happened, after he just ascended here? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So just as he left, one day he will return in the same manner. And that can bring us hope. Hope of his coming. You know, we know that Christians who die before Christ's coming are instantly in the presence of the Lord. What does the Bible tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8? It says that we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That will happen. We're either going to see him because we die and we go to heaven, or we're going to see him because he comes back for us. And there's coming a time when all Christians at once are reunited with Christ at his return. This will happen at the rapture. We have the rapture and then we have the second coming of Christ. These are two separate events. The first one is the rapture of the church. And Jesus promised that he would come for his bride, which is the church, and what we have come to know and speak of as the rapture. The word rapture is not in the Bible. You won't find the word rapture in the Bible, but the event is in the Bible. And that word rapture means a catching up. And Paul speaks of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So the rapture will happen. And then tribulation and then the second coming the second coming is another event described in scripture but it's different from the rapture 
So the rapture is not the second coming of Christ. So at the rapture, Jesus appears in heaven. He calls for his saints. We will join him there. And at the second coming, he will return back to earth with the saints. <coughs> Look at Revelation chapter 19. We're almost done here. Just a, just a little bit left. Revelation 19 verse 11, it says, And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Verse 13. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called, what? The Word of God. Does that sound familiar? Verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Is that the second coming, that Jesus will come and he will defeat the armies of the Antichrist, and then he will set up a millennial kingdom and reign for 1,000 years on earth. You know, on a sculpture on a wall in the United States Library of Congress, there are words there in the wall, and it says, One God, one law, one element, and one far-off divine event, which the whole creation moves. Pretty awesome. We have hope of his coming. We also have hope of eternal life. You know, along with the hope of Jesus coming back for us one day is our hope of eternal life. And neither of these hopes are shaky. Like some of us may hope that it's not windy when we leave tonight. We hope for good weather tomorrow. This hope is speaking of our confidence in the reality of God's promises and how that gives hope to our hearts. You know, Titus on, the, on this thought, he said, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. We have hope in eternal life because God has told us we will live eternally with him if we've done what we need to do to be saved. One, one last verse here, 1 John chapter 5, turn to it. 1 John chapter 5, you know, God's promised us eternal life for all who have believed. And that promise gives us hope. 1 John 5 verse 11. It's a lot of teaching tonight. I like to preach, and I'm excited about be, preaching through a series here, but I, know, I hope this has been helpful to you tonight. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11. It says, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath what? Life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So, because Jesus is the Son of God, because Jesus is God, we, we understand he is, he is different from any man, any prophet. And because we put our faith and trust in him for salvation, we can, we can hold to the fact, we can have eternal hope knowing that he is enough, that he is God. Now, if we look to the deity of Jesus, and this is truth that matters. Because just as Paul said, if Jesus is not God, what we're doing here tonight, the, the Bible that we're reading, the prayers that we're praying, are all in vain. They mean nothing. 
But because he's God, knowing him and following him is the only way to lasting fulfillment and joy. You know, the word of God gives us many descriptions of Jesus. I'll, I'll read these and we'll be done. To the artist, he is the altogether lovely one. To the architect, he's the chief cornerstone. To the astronomer, he's the bright and morning star. To the angler, he's the fisher of men. To the baker, he is the living bread. To the, to the banker, he's a hidden treasure. To the biologist, he is the life. To a builder, he's the sure foundation. To the capitalist, he is unsearchable riches. To the carpenter, he is the door. To the Christian, he is the son of the living God, the Savior, the Redeemer, and Lord. To the drifter, he is the anchor. To the doctor, he is the great physician. To the editor, he is, the good, he is good tidings of great joy. To the educator, he is the great teacher. To the farmer, he is the sower and the Lord of the harvest. To the friendless, he is the friend that sticketh closer than a brother. To the florist, he is the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. To the geologist, he is the rock of ages. To the horticulturalist, he is the true vine. To the judge, he's the righteous judge. To the juror, he is the faithful and true witness. To the jeweler, he is the pearl of great price. To the lawyer, he is the counselor and the advocate. To the lonely maiden, he is her betrothed. To the mother, he is the lovely son. To the mariner, he is the great polar star. To the needy, he is the source of supply. To the outcast, he is the friend of sinners. To the philosopher, he is the wisdom of God. To the photographer, he is the perfect likeness. To the pilgrim, he is the way. To the potter, he is the vessel of honor. To the preacher, he is the word of God. To the printer, he is the true type. To the sculptor, he is the living stone. To the servant, he is the good master. To the sinner, he is the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. To the student, he is the incarnate truth. To the the theologian, he is the author and finisher of our faith. To the thirsty, he is the water of life. To the toiler, he is the giver of rest. To the unclean, he is the fountain of cleansing. To the widow, he is the righteous judge. To the weary, he is the rest for the soul. Simply put, He is the need for your soul. He's your only need. And if anyone is here tonight, I don't believe there is, that hasn't trusted him, trust him. Because he's the only way to eternal life. But for those tonight, members of the church here, those that have have known Jesus a long time, if you've trusted him, make him the center of your life. He is everything. His deity means something. I hope it strengthens your faith. I hope it makes a difference in every day you live. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, God. We thank you, Lord, for who you are.